Hello, everybody. This is Cortland Allen from ndhackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of how they got their businesses to where they are now and what's going on behind the scenes so that all of us can learn from their example. Today, I'm talking to Thomas Smale, the founder of FE International. Unlike most of the interviews that I do here, I think the story of what Thomas's business does and how they do it is just as interesting as how he created it. FE International is a website brokerage, or an M&A firm for internet businesses, so they help you buy and sell businesses online. In this episode, Thomas and I get into some of the nitty-gritty behind how to determine exactly how much your business is worth, and how to maximize the value of your business and prepare it for a sale to a potential buyer. This is all super interesting stuff, even if you're not necessarily in a position to sell your business anytime soon, primarily just because it's fun to hear stories about people selling their businesses for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. On top of that, there are very few people on earth who are more qualified to talk about this than Thomas. So without further ado, I present to you Thomas Smale. I'm here with Thomas Smale, the founder of FE International. Thomas, thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having me on, Colin. So FE International is a website brokerage. Can you give us an overview of what that means exactly and what you guys are up to? Yeah, sure. So we primarily started out as a company that helped people buy and sell websites. And then as time's gone on, we've become more of a traditional M&A firm. So if you're familiar with M&A or mergers and acquisitions, then we effectively work with people who own SaaS, e-commerce, or content-based businesses, um, and walk them through the process of uh, like valuing their company initially, work with them to increase the value, and eventually sell. Uh, and then we do exactly the same thing on the buy side. So working with people who are looking to acquire companies and match them up with businesses we're representing, and help them through that acquisition process. So we work with both sides of the transaction and make deals happen. So when you say that you guys started off just helping people buy and sell companies, but you've become more like a traditional M&A firm, is the part where you actually help founders increase the value of their companies leading up to the sale, is that the part that's more like a traditional M&A firm? Yeah, so we very much position ourselves as M&A firm rather than a website broker specifically. I think the key points of differentiation, aside from just the semantics, are firstly, we very much are advisors. We're not just a transactional-based firm. We work with people, help them increase the value. And while we get paid the vast majority or all of our fee when the business actually sells, the process for a lot of people selling is multiple months or multiple years of preparation and time spent speaking and working with us until they're at the stage where they can get there. The other side of things is like our team, as we've grown, the vast majority of people who work in transactional roles at F International come from a, a background of investment banking or high-end consulting or from accounting firms or a legal background. So we have the kind of team you'd expect to find in a M&A house, like a, a Baker Tilly or, or a Goldman Sachs, rather than the traditional like business broker model, where it's a little bit more like selling real estate um, and you're dealing with a slightly different type of person who might be in that role. So I'd say they're the two main points of differentiation is really just the team while our head counts only around 28 nearly 30 people at the moment um, we provide the level of service you would hope to see in an investment bank with 10,000 employees so you guys started in 2010 right yeah that's correct I think you know five or six years ago I'd never heard of you 
But today you guys have actually represented lots of people that I know personally and selling their own businesses. So just to name a couple, Moritz Dowsinger, who I had on the podcast a couple of weeks back, you guys helped him sell Mail Parser. Patio 11, one of the very first people that I interviewed for Indie Hackers, you guys helped him sell two of his businesses, both Bingo Card Creator and Appointment Reminder. So I think it's safe to say that you guys are kind of a rocket ship in terms of going from nothing to being the only name in M&A for online tech businesses that I even recognize. Can you give us some context of how fast you've grown and what your revenue numbers look like? Yeah, so um, we've pretty much started out in 2010. And the reason you may not have heard of us in 2010 and 2011 is we weren't primarily an advisory firm then. We were more like a coaching business. So we bought and sold businesses for ourselves. And we had a a book teaching people how to buy and sell online-based businesses. And off the back of that, we worked a lot of people who teaching them the process. From there, we pivoted into pure M&A when people who learned from us said, hey, Thomas, or hey, guys, really like the course, but I'm trying to learn how to sell a business, but it's not really my, my thing. Can you just do it for me? So we started informally and then more formally representing people who wanted to sell their business and while they might be quite happy to like read a book on doing it, working with a reputable advisor has a lot of advantages over trying to do it yourself, even if you technically understand the process. So that was kind of the the story behind it. In terms of since then, we've pretty much doubled most of our metrics every year since. We don't disclose our company revenue on an annual basis, but it's in the seven-figure range. Uh, in terms of like the number of deals we've done, in terms of transactions, over $100 million in total deals now. Uh, and like I mentioned, we, at the moment we have a team of 28, and that's quite consistently growing. But yeah, revenue in the seven-figure range doubled pretty much year on year. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, that's exponential growth. That's ridiculous. So uh, we're going to get into the story a little bit of FE International and some of your advice for people who are looking to buy and sell their companies but I'm always interested in the story before the story, so to speak. Kind of your personal story as an entrepreneur. When did you first suspect that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? And when did you start buying and selling businesses yourself? Yes, yeah, so I think I was always interested in the idea of running my own business. I mean, I'd had like jobs when I was a, a kid before. So it wasn't like I was of like the cliche had a lemonade stand when I was nine and I've never done anything. Uh, since so I did a business degree at university uh, and when I was going or, or college and as I was going through that I think I realized that I was always interested in business but the idea of going to work for a big corporate company didn't really align with what I wanted to do so I figured hey why not start something for for myself and actually build something good so while I was at college doing an internship actually at an investment bank I think I was earning enough from the investment banking internship, I could start buying and selling things for myself. And I think like lots of people at college, making extra money was always a priority. So whether it was things like started out on places like eBay, just trying to flip small, small things and make a little bit more and then transitioned into websites and domains at the time where I realized you could buy something for $50 or a hundred dollars. Uh, and now I don't have a technical background at all. I can't write one line of code do have programmers and developers who work at F International, but that's not my thing. I very much figured you could buy a website, make it 
look better, both in terms of like presentation uh, and not just aesthetically, um, and then sell it sell it on for a profit. So started doing that with very small businesses, and we're talking like a hundred dollars into a thousand dollars, and then continued going from there. A hundred dollars or a thousand dollars that you paid to buy the business, or how much monthly or yearly revenue? Yeah, exactly. So like, say, buy it for a hundred dollars, sell it for a thousand dollars. Where were you finding these websites? So just various marketplaces, forums, various places on the internet where people would be selling. I was just buying them privately, making them look a little bit better, selling them on. Uh, and then that's something that we've always consistently done. So we now have a, a separate fund that we we run where we invest in primarily SaaS-based companies. Uh, and the acquisitions we're doing in that business with our own money are still in the seven-figure range. So come quite a long way since the days of putting $100 on the credit card or whatever it might be. But we've always invested in what we do. So we're not an advisory firm that don't also buy and sell ourselves. The company's been based off the fact that we have the experience. I would never tell a client to do something that I wouldn't do myself. And I think that's part of the reason we've been so successful. There are lots of advisors, coaches, or whatever you want to call them out there who tell people how to do things but never actually done it themselves we've very much been based off this is stuff we've done so i'm only teaching or talking to people about things that i've done myself and would do myself and would invest my own money in don't think it makes much sense to work with an advisor who doesn't actually practice what they preach in terms of industry or business model whatever that might be yeah i totally agree i mean not only does it make you more trustworthy to clients? I mean, who's going to trust somebody who won't do what they're saying to do, who won't put their money where their mouth is? But at the same time, uh, and this is sort of classic advice for business owners, you kind of want to stick to things that you know well, and the easiest way to do that is by solving your own problem. So in your situation, since you had experience buying and selling businesses, you were learning a lot more than somebody who, let's say, had none of that experience and just decided to start a website broker or an M&A firm. At what point during the process of you buying and selling your own websites, did you decide that, hey, I want to actually start helping other people do this and, and I want that to be my company? Yeah, so I think off the back of the book, so I like the idea of doing a book because the problem with buying and selling for yourself, particularly when you're at college and don't have any money, there's a real limit to how much income you can make to pay rent and, th- and things like that. If you are effectively have $100, you turn it into 1000 uh, while like on paper as a percentage, that's a, a fantastic return. In absolute terms, it doesn't really get that far. And it puts a lot of pressure on continuously doing transactions and turning businesses around in a week. And as it scales, it becomes more and more difficult. You can't, say, buy a business for $10,000 and sell it for 100000 uh, in a week. Whereas you can do that between, say, $100 and $1,000. So as it gets bigger, it gets exponentially harder. Um, so to be honest, like the start was really by accident. It was I was teaching people how to do it. Um, and we were helping people learn how to do the process. And then they came to us and said, hey, can you help us? Um, the, re- the real pivot and transitional point was in 2012, where my current business partner and CEO of F International, Ismail, joined the company. He So we went to college together. He went into investment banking after university. I set up FE International. And then he came in when I got to the stage where I was like, hey, Esmail, I know about this. I know about the online stuff. I'm quite entrepreneurial. We're making some money. I have a small team. 
um, but I don't know how to run a business. I don't really know the formal side of the advisory world. So I guess the M&A, which he'd been working in. And he had got to the stage in his career where he wanted a little bit of a change. His background was very much billion-dollar M&A deals. So he joined in 2012. And the first thing, the first major change he made was, hey, why are you messing around still doing $1,000 deals when you've got people thousand dollar deals for yourself and you've got people coming to you with six figure businesses and you can charge them say 15 percent to help them sell it and that's actually what you're good at so from then on we focused very much on the m&a side of things and kind of gradually became our main source of income whereas prior to that i think i was that classic entrepreneur who kind of did a little bit of everything and even when i found something that was working well wasn't really a massive focus for me I think one of the things that's intimidating about doing stuff like this, at least from an outsider's perspective, is that M&A deals, uh, buying and selling businesses, is pretty intimidating. I mean, it's it seems like a lot of paperwork, a lot of drudgery, and oftentimes that drives founders away from a particular business ideal. But on the flip side, that means there ends up tending to be slightly less innovation and the competition in the particular space. So it can be often these like drudgery type businesses are the best businesses to get into. Uh, so a good example is my business, my employer Stripe, who is in the payment space. And while today Stripe is like an extremely fun place to work with a ton of challenging problems for engineers, non-engineers alike, in the early days of Stripe, it was mostly just conversations with bankers, you know, and, and filling out paperwork. When you started FEI, what were some of the things that you had to learn to kind of get over that initial hump? Lots of different things. Um, when we started out, the service was a little bit more informal, so it was very much kind of like we will help you with the process, whereas we're now very much a full-service M&A firm, so we do absolutely everything for people, other than answer questions that people have, but we put together everything. We value the business for them. They're not really expected to do anything in the process other than answer our questions and answer by questions that are kind of handled by our, our team and like directly with buyers. So, I mean, there's, there's lots of different things you have to learn as you go along. I mean, one of the biggest challenges working with small business owners particularly is financials. A lot of small business owners or even big business owners don't do a very good job of keeping track of their financials. So we still, to this day, spend a lot of time with people, helping them get their financials into order and kind of organizing P&Ls. There's also a lot of things. That, this is something that comes with time as well. Buyers ask, lots of different buyers ask lots of different questions, but there's a lot of similarities. So when we now work with a seller, we can ask them very early on the questions we know that are deal killers for the vast majority of buyers. So there's been a lot of things we've just learned purely through the fact that we've done more and more deals, and that really just comes with comes with time. Um, but you're right, the advisory world isn't really a the kind of industry that has a lot of innovation. So one of the things we've done since day one to make sure we kind of keep ahead and stay very different. And we, um, so last year we won, and the year before actually, we won IBBA. And IBBA is the, effectively the broker association for business brokers and M&A advisors in North America. And while we're a very much an international company, as the name suggests, um, we do a lot of business in North America, and that prize is given to the company that does the most deals in terms of volume in North America. So in terms of volume, we're a very high volume as far as M&A advisors or business brokers go. 
Um, and part of the reason for that is we've used technology to our advantage. So traditional M&A firms still do a lot of things like kind of by paper, by hand. They might be using things like fax, whereas we've built out our own proprietary CRM, which is, I guess, similar to Salesforce in terms of like what it's what it's for. It's very much saying we used to manage our pipeline of leads to keep in contact with leads to allocate work internally to keep track of our like processes and SOPs and make sure things that are things that are very consistent. Um, so we learned very on, very early on, sorry, that you have to standardize these things. But you can also use technology to to help manage various kind of processes. So that's something I think in any business can be applied, putting good systems in early on and leveraging technology to advantage is a way to get ahead of competitors in a in a space for example like ours where the traditional m a advisor is still doing things the old school way they've been doing it for 20 30 years so you can get ahead without really having to reinvent the wheel just by making some kind of simple improvements and leverage technology so i think that's an excellent segue kind of away from the story of fei and, and getting more into a discussion about buying and selling businesses, which I really want to talk about because I've got you on the podcast and obviously you're an expert here. And this is a topic that most entrepreneurs don't know anything about. Ultimately, the people who end up selling and, and buying businesses are themselves entrepreneurs, but the vast majority of businesses either die before they get to the point where they're viable to be sold. And of course, there are lots of businesses that are doing well enough to be able to sell, but their owners, for one reason or another, don't want to sell. So you're dealing with the sort of arcane knowledge that not a lot of us have access to. So I'd love to pick your brain about a few things here. The first question I have for you is fairly broad. But actually, before we even get into it, I want to make sure that listeners understand this conversation is relevant to them. So in your opinion, what is the smallest business worth selling? Uh, That's a good question. So for us, from an advisory perspective, we want businesses that make at least $1,000 MRR, assuming they're SaaS. We have a minimum fee of $5,000. So that basically means a deal that kind of makes sense for us and makes sense for someone who's selling. You can certainly sell something that's smaller than that, but I'd say any smaller than that, if you don't have any traction, then you're very much selling a project. And it's much more difficult to put any sort of reliable valuation on it, which is important for us on a standardized basis. And let's say I have a business that's doing $1,000 in monthly recurring revenue. Just sort of ballpark, what kind of range... Would I be looking to get for that if I were to sell? Yes, it depends on the cost base. Uh, generally speaking, are multiple ranges of your profit or SDE. And what is SDE? So SDE is effectively the net profit of a business. And then we add back or exclude or effectively adjust anything the owner takes in the business or any one-time costs. So the most common add back or adjustment is the owner salary. So if you're paying yourself $1,000 a month or $10,000 a month in the business, then that's very much standardized. Um, and the reason we do that is to take into account that different business owners have different needs and it wouldn't be fair for the person who had a smaller salary to have a business worth more than the business owner who takes a, a bigger salary if all the other variables are exactly the same. So that's why it's standardized. So once you have your effectively SDE number, we then apply a multiple to that using a proprietary valuation tool we we built, which looks at variables from past deals 
the average small SaaS company. So I guess the caveat for that would be below a million dollars in ARR. It's going to sell for somewhere in the region of three to six times annual SDE. So using the example of saying making a thousand dollars MRR, a lot of the small companies at that level we see have very little in the way of costs. So you might be making say ten thousand a year in SDE. That business is probably going to be worth anywhere from thirty to sixty thousand. And then you could apply similar logic to say ten thousand dollars MRR. It's probably going to be in the kind of ten ten x that. So. 300,000 to 600,000 range. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I think another question that a lot of people listening may have is, when is it worth selling my business? Because there's lots of variables to consider. You've got the health of the business, you've got your passion for actually running it, whether or not you enjoy your job as a founder. There are market trends to consider, whether or not your particular industry is trending well and it has a rosy future. What do you say to people who come to you and ask whether or not now is a good time for them to sell their business? Yeah, so I always say to people about that, that it's a very much a personal decision. So one of the things we'll always do is help people put together a valuation for free. And like I was saying, right at the beginning of the interview, we were talking a little bit about like what is an advisory firm. And a lot of that means giving someone something, in, in which case it's a, a valuation. And then we work with them to establish when the best time for them to sell it is. So for some people, it might be, hey, look, we valued your business, it's worth $1 million. And they say, well, I want $2 million. So we, we're not then just going to adjust the valuation and say, all right, we'll, we'll try for $2 million because we know <laughs> what the market we know what the market says and we don't quite honestly want to waste people's time or our own time on something that's not going to happen. But we'll say, hey, here's some things you can go away and work on um, and then come back. So right at the beginning, you mentioned Maritz, um, who sold his business and was on the podcast um, recently, the conversations with him started many years before he finally decided to to work with us. And that's very common with a, a lot of our clients. So when when it's right to sell really depends. So in Moritz's case, for example, it was he had another project that he wanted to focus on and releasing some cash was important. For other people, it's maybe a, a family thing. Some people have kids and they decide, well, actually... I want to spend some more time with my family now. And that's a bigger priority. Other people, particularly those who have smaller businesses, they might be working a full-time job still. For them, it's, hey, I've got I've got a new job and I now no longer have the time to run this. Um, a lot of clients we deal with, it's, they'll sell their business so they can pay off their mortgage. Uh, so lots of different times. I never, and no one in our company would ever advise someone on the right time for them to sell. It's really very much what do they want? What do they want to achieve? And most people have a time-based goal or a value-based goal. So it's, um, hey, I want a million dollars, I want $2 million, $10 million, whatever that might be. Or I want to sell the business by the end of the year. I'm sure you get, well, let me ask you, do you get a lot of people who have only recently decided that they want to sell their business? So they haven't yet taken the time to get it in the best of shape. Yeah, that, that happens a lot. I mean, one of the reasons I do a lot of podcasts and a lot of speaking and publish a lot of content, I would say we were talking a little bit about like how things have changed over the years. Definitely noticed in recent years, people are getting better educated. There's a lot more content, particularly from us out there, if you want to sell and the kind of things you need to be doing to repair. So I do find that a lot of people 
I guess particularly people listening to a podcast like this are actually trying to improve their knowledge. So we have less people than we used to who just turn up with zero knowledge uh, at all. I mean, it really does depend on the business. Some businesses are really well run uh, and no advice from me is going to make any improvements to it. And then there are other companies that just aren't sellable. But we're, I mean, we're always very honest with people. So we put together a valuation. Sometimes it might be that actually we don't think this business can be sold or we're not right, the right fit as an advisory firm. And one of the reasons we have such a good reputation, this has very much been built on honesty and integrity. We're not going to tell someone we'll sell their business if we actually can't. Because it's quite honestly just a waste of everyone's, everyone's time in that respect. We'll just be honest with people. There's no, I guess there's no like right or wrong way to do it. A lot of businesses that people think aren't sellable are actually very sellable. There's lots of you know, literally tens of thousands of investors looking to buy profitable SaaS-based businesses particularly. So a company that someone might think, not think is very interesting themselves or they've given up on or haven't really spent much time on recently. doesn't mean there's not going to be someone who's not interested in acquiring it. Are there any notable stories that come to mind for you or any examples of somebody who thought their business was in disarray and had no chance of really doing well, but you guys were able to turn it around for them and sell for much higher than they thought? Yes, yeah, so I say in terms of like disarray, I, I'd say that might be slightly hyperbole in, in that respect. Um, <laughs> but I mean, without naming names, I can talk about some businesses. I mean, a good example would be you said Patio 11 or Patrick McKenzie, as I know him a lot better, when he sold his first business with us which was Bingo Card Creator, I remember having the, the conversation with him. And I can talk about this one because it's public knowledge. Uh, the, whereas 95% of the deals we do are always confidential in terms of who the buyer was, who the seller was, what the business was. If you're someone like Patrick, it's kind of unavoidable that people are going to figure out you sold. He was surprised that there was such liquid market for businesses at that level because for him it had been a little bit of an abandoned project. Like it very much got him his start online and started building his reputation. But as a business itself, it wasn't big enough to sustain uh, himself and his his family. Um, so I think he was surprised that that business was sellable. So it wasn't necessarily that we did anything in particular to change the business, but we could bring buyer demand to the table and find people who were very interested in buying a business like that. So I think it does surprise a lot of people the kind of buyers and people who'd be interested in buying their business, even if to them it doesn't necessarily tick the boxes they need it to. So I think that's probably the biggest lesson for people. We're not really the kind of firm that gets involved in like distressed asset sales where someone's business is kind of declining, they're kind of burning 20000 a month and then we help them turn it around and sell. We work with successful business owners who are probably already profitable and are looking to optimize that by making more profit or quite honestly just running a, a very solid process and getting them a getting the outcome that they thought wasn't possible which is i guess selling a company that would be challenging particularly if you try and do it yourself uh, there's lots of kind of pitfalls and challenges doing that whereas when you've got tens of thousands of buyers on a mailing list in a crm who we've speak to week in week out very possible to sell businesses that otherwise couldn't be done. 
Yeah, you guys are a marketplace business, meaning you've got buyers on one side looking to buy businesses, and you've got entrepreneurs and owners on the other side looking to sell the businesses that they've worked to create. And I think traditionally, starting any sort of marketplace business where you've got two different types of customer segments is the most difficult business you could start because it means you have to understand two problems at once and then build out two different solutions. And then you have to deal with this chicken and egg problem where your platform isn't useful for buyers unless you have sellers, and your platform isn't useful for sellers unless you have buyers. So you have this kind of seesaw effect where you're focusing on one side, but you have to focus on the other, et cetera. And I'm sure this was probably more of an issue for you guys in the early days than it is today, but how have you balanced growing both sides of this marketplace? Yeah, no, that's a very good, very good question. It's a, like, a very good point. While I guess we're not a marketplace in the traditional sense, we still are a marketplace in that we have to match two parties. So going back to some of the things we were talking about earlier, um, we started out and still are, I guess, buyers and sellers ourselves. So we understand the problem on both sides and have been through the process on both sides. So we could create a system and a process that didn't just work for sellers, it also works well for buyers and once you've done enough deals that kind of process continues to refine and improve with with time when we started out the vast majority of our sellers came to us off the back of the book so they were like well this information is really good these guys clearly know what they're doing so i want to work with them and in the same place that you find those sellers buyers also find you from the same same places and then from the sell side over time particularly in the SaaS space and I guess in lots of different industries that we operate within, word of mouth has been a very key driver of new business for us. And that's partly because if you're going to sell your business, quite honestly, it's a really big decision. And there's no marketing ploy or process or anything my marketing team can do to persuade someone to sell a business more so than a peer they know or respect recommending us. So that's always been extremely powerful for us on that side of things. And it works exactly the same, same with buyers. When people hear that companies have been successfully sold, um, I guess it's a testament to the quality of businesses we work with. When those companies are still thriving well past the, the time of the deal. So a good example of that would be um, the Drip deal. So many of you will be familiar with Drip that we sold to Lead Pages about a year ago. So I was in Minneapolis visiting the, the lead pages office, which now has uh, the drip team in there to celebrate the one year anniversary of that deal closing. Since that acquisition's gone through, the business is thriving. They've they've grown it. The team has expanded. So I think from a, a buyer perspective, a lot of people see the success that other buyers have had in the space and find you that way. And we've grown while well, we've grown a hundred percent year on year. It's not like we've been growing, say, a thousand percent every year. So we don't have any sort of marketing approach that brings in tens of thousands of new buyers or new sellers. We're not a business that can just turn on Facebook ads and suddenly bring in a, a bunch of business. Word of mouth is a very reliable way of building a business, but it is also quite slow. But once it's going, you build up a huge amount of momentum, which means that we get more and more business coming in every day. and We don't have to do a huge amount to do that. The main challenge for us is educating people. I guess the purpose of coming on podcasts like this and speaking to people is that more and more people come in and they've 
they come in better prepared. So their company's more sellable, uh, they're worth more, and we have to spend less time kind of educating them on how the process works, what they need to do, what they need to think about, what they can do to make it worth more. So that's always been been our approach. Yeah, I think word of mouth is such a great growth channel for anybody, but especially for you guys, because you're very much a trust-based business. People coming to you probably don't know very much at all about how to sell a business. And they're putting a lot, I mean, they're putting their baby in your hands. And so when they come to you off the back of a recommendation from a friend or by hearing that a company that they trust used you guys and had a good outcome, that does so much of the legwork in terms of taking care of any objections they might have versus if they come to you via like a Facebook ad or, or something else. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the businesses I see that have done really well. I mean, ultimately, if you have a good product or good service, people will talk about it, particularly entrepreneurs. I refer a huge amount of business to lots of different companies and lots of different people in my peer group, just from businesses I've kind of like looked at and like, or even using internally. So that's always a powerful way of doing it. Assuming you have a good way of reaching those people in the first place, which I guess is always the the challenge. The first few customers is difficult. From there, you can very much just do a really good job of impressing people and then they'll want to work with you and they'll want to tell everyone about you. It's not like I call up every single client who sells a business with us and say, hey, hope you had a good experience. Can you go tell your friends about us? <laughs> um, because, I mean, yes, there are some people who will do that, but ultimately the best form of word of mouth is saying that I haven't had or my team hasn't had an influence over. The only influence has been the fact that they're really happy with the service we've provided. They think if they're selling, they've got a, a really good deal or they feel like on the if they've been buying a business through us, they feel like the process was good. They feel like the business they acquired was good. And they feel like, not necessarily they got a good deal, but they feel like it was like fair in the transaction. So let's say I have a SaaS business and I'm thinking about selling. What are some of the most important things that I can do early on to start preparing my company to get a higher valuation than it might otherwise get? Yes, there's lots of different things you can look at. So I'd say the the very first thing to do is get a valuation and figure out where you're at today. Because unless you know where you're at right now, it's very difficult to figure out where you need to get to. And I think having a very ambiguous target, like increase your value, doesn't really mean anything without any context. So what is it worth now? And then figure out where do you want to get it to? Because the decisions that you'll be making and the lengths that you will go to to get there will really depend from there. So if you want to turn your business from a million-dollar business into a $1.2 million business, the things you have to do to get there are a lot different from someone who wants to turn their million-dollar business into a $10 million business. So there are some things in there that, that affect value and valuation that you can't really affect other than with patience. So for example, the age of the business. There's nothing you can do other than waiting uh, for that business to be worth more. Uh, then there are things like trends. So what is the industry you're in doing? Again, once you've picked your industry and picked the space you're targeting, there's not a huge amount you can do to influence the macro trends in that business or that industry. So for example, we've done a lot of businesses that or SaaS companies that target the real estate space. When the real estate market is going well, a lot of these businesses can do really well. But conversely, there are also products out there that would benefit from a recession in the real estate space. 
So there's lots of different ways to do it in, in that respect. But you probably can't change your target market, nor do I think that'd be a sensible idea for the vast majority of people who are kind of off the ground and running. Probably one of the most important things that can be done, particularly in a small business where you're doing a lot of the work yourself, is cutting down the amount of time you spend on a business. So say for argument's sake, you have a SaaS company and you're making 300,000 revenue and then 200,000 in SDE, but you're working 60 hours a week, like the vast majority of entrepreneurs do, that business is going to be worth a lot less than that same business where the owner is working five to 10 hours a week. So a lot of that is putting systems and processes in place. Like I was talking about earlier, that's worked really well for us over the years, put systems and processes in place that are repeatable, hire people in the team. So while lots of people have heard about us now, that's not nothing that I've done. So much the fact we've got a very good team who can continue to deliver on the systems and processes that myself and Ismail put in place. It's not like we're the ones doing all of the deals and all the work. And it's the same same in any company. It's really the founder or the CEO's job to kind of leverage the team they have to deliver the the service or product if you have a SaaS company um, and you're not a service-based business. So getting a team in place is really important and can help you increase valuation. So all else being equal, you think having employees will increase the value of your company? Yes, absolutely. Particularly if that means you have to spend less time in it. I mean, I, we've seen, particularly in SaaS, there's lots of companies where you can have one person managing, say, $10,000 in MRR, working half an hour a day. But that is less common than someone who needs someone handling support tickets or whatever that might be uh, to do more. So having a team in place is always a good thing, particularly if those same employees are willing to stay on with the business post-sale. So no one wants to buy a business where the owner's taking their entire team with them. They're like, hey, I'm selling the business because I'm bored of it. I've got this really great team, but I'm keeping them for my next venture. Do you want to buy my business? That's not a very compelling story. So a lot of the time, from an advisor perspective, it's really helping people position their their story a little bit better. So it might be like, well, yes, the fact you have a business that you want to move on to, and it's not this one, is fine. But taking the team with you is a terrible signal to a buyer. So we need to work in a way that the buyer doesn't feel like they're going to get screwed over when you leave the business. Maybe some of the team stay. Ideally, all of the team stay. But there are very much things like we can advise on once we've done the initial valuation and figure out where people are at. And then there are the more common things that everyone talks about in SaaS, so reducing churn rate. Every single buyer in the SaaS space, they're everyone on their criteria, top three things they want, they want a business with low churn. So while that doesn't mean a business with higher churn can't be sold, everybody wants a business with low churn. Everybody wants a business that doesn't take a huge amount of time to run. And everybody wants a business that's growing. Those are pretty universal things that every single buyer would have. Uh, the exceptions being buyers who are only looking for businesses that may be like distressed or declining and not really doing that well. But those tend to be the kind of buyers you don't find with advisors like us because quite honestly, as a buyer, you're not going to get a good deal because it's our job to maximize value for the seller. Those are the kind of people doing deals privately. So I hear from a lot of people who have 
started doing a deal privately and kind of got messed around in the process. And that's because if you are a buyer looking for deals like that, it doesn't make any sense to go through a broker when you can persuade people privately to deal with you. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the importance of having a good story, or at least not having a bad story. Are there any examples that you're able to share of a company that had a really good story that helped itself or more? So I touched very briefly on Drip. So Drip is, for those of you who don't know, is an email marketing automation platform uh, founded by primarily Rob Walling and Derek Reamer. And for anybody who's never been, Rob Walling hosts MicroConf. I was just there in March. It was an excellent conference, and it's great for anybody who's running an internet business or thinking about it. Yeah, that's right. Um, Also has a podcast as well, various other things that he does. So I think as that business was building, Rob was leveraging his knowledge and contacts in the space to help build the product. And he was effectively building a product that people in the SaaS space that he knew so well, people loved the the product. Um, And while it's now used by a much wider range of people, he built a product that was great. And Clay from Lead Pages, who primarily drove the acquisition from their stage, loved the product. And while from a buyer perspective, you obviously need to tick a lot of boxes in terms of like, is it financially viable to acquire? Do the do the metrics make sense for us? Does the deal make sense? Ultimately, having a really good product is one of those kind of subjective money can't buy factors that if someone really likes it, they'll be more willing to maybe overlook some of the other factors that if you were purely looking at a deal on a financial basis that might be a little bit challenging, particularly for bigger deals where company like lead pages for example have venture funding and they're very publicly known they don't want to be seen to acquire businesses that are low quality and kind of people hate it and like oh this product sucks i don't like it uh, as an investor that could be fine those businesses could be great You're like well i've got a good deal on this i picked it up for around market value the customers kind of like it at the moment but there's a bunch of stuff i can do if you're an unknown investor or relatively anonymous, that's a really good opportunity. Someone like Lead Pages, that's way too much of a risk. So having a good product is one of those things that can't really put a value on it as such. It's not like being a good product that everyone loves means you're worth X times more. But it does mean that people will look at it and be like, well, I like this business. I want to buy it. Which is really what happened in the case of Drip and Lead Pages. Clay liked the product. It was a good fit for what Lead Pages are built. It was the perfect time for Rob and Derek to move on. They got to the business to not the biggest they possibly could have got to, but they got it to the size they had done with no outside funding or anything like that. And there does become a time in many businesses' life cycle where it makes sense to hand it over or, or move on to someone who has, or a company specifically that has more resources or maybe more experience to grow it to the next level. So I always say there's... In many companies, like much like with mine, there's a kind of certain type of person who can get a business from zero to say a hundred thousand a year. That tends to be the very entrepreneurial type person. And then there's a different person who can get that business from a few hundred thousand a year to say five or ten million in revenue. And then there's often a different person that comes in between ten million and a hundred million, and then a hundred million and a billion. 
so again, talking about lead pages, like very recently, I think Clay moved aside as CEO to bring someone else in who has more experience growing the business to the next level. So it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean that Clay sucks or wasn't very good at his job. He just gets to the stage where in every business there's naturally a time where it makes sense to to move on. And hopefully that's a positive move for the company. And that could also mean in terms of an exit, it could mean actually we're not going to bring in someone internally to do that because Rob could have hired a CEO, for example, and be like, well, I want someone who can take us to 10 million in revenue. In his case, it made sense to go down the route of an exit. So there are lots of different ways to approach a problem. And the real way is to kind of get an accurate overview of where you are. If you don't know what your business is worth and what your options are, then you don't really have much much choice. But if you think about these things in advance and plan them, like Rob always very consciously did from day one, then it's no coincidence that he had a successful exit a couple of years into the company. How much work is involved on the founder's side early on of just determining and working with you guys to determine what the value is of their business if they're considering selling? Are we talking about like weeks of work or a few hours or days? Yeah, so we're very conscious of our process for selling. Like while we're an advisory firm, we try and do as much as possible. There's work involved on the founder's side once someone is committed to selling. So I'd be lying if I said, oh, it's like two hours of work and the, the company is sold. On the valuation side, however, before there's been any formal commitment or kind of someone wants to get started, we're very conscious to, there's a trade-off between making a valuation as accurate as possible and making it as easy as possible for the, the seller. So in very simple terms, we tend to look at financials from the last 12 months uh, in a SaaS business, we'll look at metrics. And there are so many tools out there these days, like ProfitWell or Bear Metrics or whatever, that can pull in metrics from things like Stripe uh, without really the need for any any time or effort other than installing the app if you don't already use it. And then a selection of other questions. So if you have all of your numbers in good order, then there's really not a huge amount of work. I would say less than an hour for almost everyone who wants to get evaluation from us. And then from there, it does take more time, but there's no commitment until you're kind of comfortable with evaluation and ready to go. Are there any common mistakes you see people make or, or numbers that they've left out or forgotten to track that makes it harder for them to get evaluation? I, I say what a lot of people do tend to do when they hear that a business is valued off a multiple of profit primarily is a lot of people... Well, less less as the years have gone on. A lot of people start cutting costs in areas that aren't really a good idea to cut costs. So, for example, you might have a business with two customer support reps and you fire one of them and then suddenly, doesn't, yes, your business is making more profit, but three to six months' time, it starts to have an effect on other metrics that will actually decrease the value of the business like your churn might increase or people don't quite love the product as much because response times are now a day slower on average. So there are less people talking about the product and then there are less people kind of signing up and it starts to grow at a slower rate. So I'd say trying to massage profit and make adjustments to make a business seem more profitable than it actually is, is quite common. And that's something I always encourage people to avoid. You want to run the business you're running, even if you are thinking about selling, you want to have a 10-year a goal in mind. 
So you want to make sure every decision you make, is the business still going to be thriving in 10 years based on the decision you make? It's very short-term thinking to make adjustments and kind of cut corners just for the sake of making your net income line, which then turns into your SDE, look better. I say in SaaS particularly, with, with the third-party tools out there for tracking metrics, most people do track those metrics. doesn't necessarily mean they log in every day and be like, oh, this is my churn rate, this is my MRR, because they're not really that relevant in the day-to-day of a business. You might check them once a month, but they're very easy to set up. From a cost perspective, most people are pretty good at keeping track of what they spend. Where it can get a little bit tricky is if they own multiple businesses. And then we have to combine or figure out, let's say they have, just keep it simple, they have two SaaS products and they both share the same server and they pay $1,000 a month for that server. We'd then have to figure out pro rata, what's it going to cost to run one once the other one is gone. Uh, so there are some considerations around that. And that's why it's important to speak to us as early as possible because these are the kind of things we'd pick up in our initial questioning and valuation which may seem relatively minor, but as with a lot of these things, with a little bit of advanced preparation, you can put yourself in a much better position now rather than getting halfway through the sales process and being like, oh, suddenly we've got to move servers that the product's on or whatever that might be. Wow, that part about people firing their customer support reps is horrible. But uh, unrelated, another challenge or I guess the source of anxiety that a lot of people have when they're thinking about selling their business is about the code that they've written, especially if they're a developer founder or even if they're not a developer. Maybe they have a lot of processes going on in their business that only they understand. If you're selling and you don't plan to continue working on the business, how important is it for you to ensure that things are in a state where a buyer can easily come through and pick up where you left off? Is that a problem that you see coming up often? Definitely with solo founders, it's a very good point. Yes. So I always say to people, document your code and write it down. Just keep track of what you've done. I I mean, I would say particularly with solo founders, like quite often rightfully so, from like very good developers, I've done a really good job building a product by themselves. So they'll obviously be like confident in their own abilities. But particularly with code, I'd say it's very unlikely you're going to be the best person or the only person in the world who could have developed or programmed the the product to the extent that it has been done. So as long as things are documented properly, you want to be at the stage where a competent developer can come in and understand the code you've written and being able to take it over. That doesn't necessarily mean they could have been the ones that came up with the idea and got it, got an MVP out there, got some initial customers, um, and then got it to where it is when you decide to sell. But they want to come into the reasonably mature product, be able to take it over, and go from there. So I think the key with that is just kind of keeping your ego in check and realizing it's actually a good thing if someone else can come in and kind of take over and do what you do. I mean, I learned this lesson many, many, many years ago where I thought at the beginning of the company, I was the best person at doing absolutely everything. And now, quite honestly, I have a team of 28 people and I don't think I'm the best at anything. And as an employer, that's a fantastic position to be in. I never sit at my desk like, well, I have to do everything. I don't, my team don't know what they're doing. Every person on the team is better at the vast majority of their job than I would be. Uh, And that's just an ego thing. It used to be that I thought I was the smartest person in the room all the time and that that was important. 
and while I think you do need to have that kind of hustle and kind of self-confidence starting out to go from say naught to 10,000 whether that's 10,000 customers or $10,000 that's not what builds you a multi-million dollar or like billion dollar company it's by building a team around you Um, and as a developer even if you're a solo developer that's just as simple as documenting your code doesn't mean you have to stop writing code yourself but it does mean you have to document things and make sure that someone can else can come in and understand it if necessary so we're running low on time here but i've got a few more questions if you've got time first is you mentioned earlier that typical multiples for SaaS based businesses are in the three to six six x range what is the biggest multiple that you've ever seen a SaaS business go for? And what are some of the factors that contributed to them being able to sell for so much? So can't really go into the specifics, but I've seen some deals where the multiples have been kind of way beyond that. And that would often be because they have quite high revenue, but they're not particularly profitable. In that case, that could be because they're a like particularly good industry or micro-industry leading product, like something like Drip, for example, without disclosing the multiple was beyond what we would see on average then there are situations where a business might be very high growth so they're investing into that growth and reinvesting consistently meaning that their bottom line profit might not be that impressive but they're growing their revenue 20 percent month on month so in the in the vc world a lot of people talk about SaaS valuations and people hear 5 10 20x revenue and then they come to us and they say well why is it three to six times SDE. And the real differentiator there is is growth. Often the, the VCs investing at these huge valuations are doing so because a business is growing at a significant rate. And if your growth rate is, say, 50% month a month, it makes sense to keep throwing money at that growth. Whereas if you're a more common client for us, might be in the 2 to 5% monthly growth range. And at that level, it doesn't necessarily make sense to be losing money every month so growth rate is is important i guess the product as well and it also seems like some of these factors apply a lot more to bigger businesses who are generating lots of revenue as opposed to businesses who are generating a relatively small amount of mrr yeah i think that's the other thing as well like it gets to a stage where if you're doing less than we tend to use about a million. There's no hard and fast rule, but about a million in ARR or 100,000 in MRR. At that level, you probably have to scale that buyers might be looking at something else more than just the profit you're making because you're probably a significant player in whatever niche you're in um, or you have the the kind of scale. Chances are if you're making $100,000 a month um, in revenue, you have a team. So at that stage, it's a slightly different proposition than a solo founder SaaS company making $10,000 MRR, which is quite common for us to see as well. One of the hardest things to do as a founder, I think, is to focus on one particular thing. What are your goals with FE International in the long term? And what are some of your most tempting distractions? So we have a lot of things that we're working on over the next five to 10 years. Our kind of key goal in terms of transactional size and, and company in general as uh, billion dollars in total transactions and like i said we're over 100 million now so we're well on the way uh, but there's a lot of work to do in the meantime um in terms of distractions everything i i do now like i'm still an entrepreneur at heart 
that everything I do is through FE International. I don't have side businesses or do anything like that. Quite honestly, I found that just by focusing in on one thing, which in my case is F International, maybe other ventures that we start or acquire or whatever under F International, don't do anything separately. And I found that by focusing on one thing, while it might be tempting to start 20 other projects doing different things, uh, you can make a lot more and be a lot more successful just doing one thing really well than you can doing 20 things or five things uh, to a reasonable level of competency. So I'd say I've, I've definitely got past the stage now where I have any personal distractions. I'm very passionate about what we do uh, and I like vision for the future. So I don't have any reason to kind of be looking elsewhere at other things. And I think my, from a personal perspective, my entrepreneurial curiosity gets largely helped by the fact that I look at lots of different companies on a daily basis and I get to work with business owners. So there's always a new challenge. It's not like while our service is very similar every time, there's always a new business to look at. So there's always that kind of interesting angle of looking at something new, learning about something new. I think that's a great answer and it's also a great place to end the episode. Can you tell us where listeners can go to find out more about you and FE International Online? Yeah, so the best thing to do, go to our website, www.feinternational.com. On there, depending on what you're looking to do, if you're just looking for content, if you go to our blog section or resource section, you see lots of content that we've put together and launched over the years that can teach you a lot more about lots of different things we've spoken about. Interested in any of our new listings, you can go to the, the buyer site page and learn more about the businesses we have available at the moment. If you want to get evaluation, you can go to the seller site section and get in contact with us and we can do that. Uh, and then on the site as well, you'll find all of our different social media channels of which are active on many. So whatever your favorite channel is. Thomas, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much, Colin. Appreciate being on. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you're looking for a way to help support the Indie Hackers podcast, then you should subscribe on iTunes and leave a quick rating and a review. It only takes about 30 seconds, but it actually really helps get the word out, and I would personally appreciate it very much. In addition, if you are running an internet business or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other internet entrepreneurs on the ndhackers.com forum. It's basically a community of like-minded individuals just giving each other feedback and helping out with ideas and landing pages and marketing and growth and other internet business-related topics. That's www.ndhackers.com forum. Hope to see you guys there.